great. Thank you so much for the warm welcome. It really is a joy to be here with you today. Um, and, and, and that's true, even though we're looking at a very different subject this morning. It's a difficult one for us, I think. I think this is probably one of, if not the toughest question that is posed against the Christian faith and posed both by those inside the church and those outside it as well. Uh, Some of you may be really struggling with this question. Unfortunately, I won't be able to deal with every aspect of it this morning because we just don't have enough time. But if it is something you're wrestling with, then I just want to let you know that on the 7th of May, the organization I work for are actually hosting a whole day conference specifically on the question of why suffering. It's going to be in London. So if that's something you're interested in, then there are flyers in reception and please do feel free to help yourself to one of those during coffee or on your way out. But why doesn't God intervene? I don't think that you would accuse me of exaggerating when I say that actually we all live in a world that is in crisis. And it's a crisis that feels remarkably close to home for so many of us. You know, in 2001, my father-in-law, who worked at the New York Stock Exchange, actually stood there watching in horror as New Yorkers jumped to their deaths from the Twin Towers before the whole buildings came crashing down. And in 2005, my brother was running slightly late for work in London, and he was on a tube heading towards Liverpool Street Station when the train ahead of him blew up. That same year, I was living in Uganda, and I got to know this really adorable eight-year-old boy called Wycliffe. But two months after I came back to England, I found out that there'd been a drought, that his family had come, uh, just come upon hard times. They couldn't afford food. And actually, Wycliffe had died of starvation. Last year, my best friend was stranded at Camp One on Mount Everest when a huge avalanche came crashing down and killed 19 people at base camp. And one of my students, a guy called Hassan, is a priest from northern Nigeria, who was actually the person who first alerted the global media to the kidnapping of the 276 schoolgirls by the militant group Boko Haram. And consequently, Hassan now lives with a bounty on his head and has been shot at twice. And just last month, a friend of mine was returning from holiday in France, uh, only to find as they arrived in Dover, five refugees stowed away in their camper van who went running off into the countryside. This is the world that we live in, a world that can leave us feeling outraged and frustrated at what we perceive to be genuine evil. And if that's how you feel this morning in the face of that kind of horror, then the first thing that I want to say to you today is that actually the Christian faith agrees with you. Christianity says that your intuitions are correct and you're absolutely right to feel this way. And what you may not realize is that actually amongst different faith systems, this is a really unique Position. So in Islam, for example, suffering is seen as the will of Allah, and therefore it's something that isn't to be questioned. In Hinduism, suffering isn't real. It's believed to be just an illusion. And in Buddhism, something is, suffering is actually something that you just have to overcome by detaching yourself from the experience of suffering in this world. And actually, even in atheism, there's no such thing as objective good or objective evil. Because in order to have those things, you actually need a divine being to ground your morality in. If there's no God, then actually it takes away any sense of an absolute belief in right or wrong. Instead, everything that we believe about these things simply becomes a matter of personal preference. 
But uniquely in Christianity, however, is the recognition that evil is a real thing. That this world is not the way that it's supposed to be. There's a serious problem and there is something very broken. And even more than that, the Christian God is actually a God who hates evil and suffering and who stands opposed to it. You know, it's likely that even here this morning, some of you are going through terrible suffering. And if that's the case, then perhaps the most important thing that I could say to you today is this, that God grieves with you. In John chapter 11, in response to the news that his friend Lazarus had died, we get both the shortest and one of the most powerful verses in the Bible. Jesus wept. You know, Christians worship a God who is not unfeeling, but a God who knows what it's like to grieve at the graveside of a friend and to experience that terrible sense of outrage and disillusionment that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. And yet you might rightly ask me, if God cares so much about our suffering, then why doesn't he do anything about it? You know, if any one of us had the power to stop pain and suffering, and yet we just stood by and let it happen, then I think people would rightly call us monstrous. So what then does this say to us about God? What kind of God would allow these things to go on happening day in and day out without putting a stop to them? I think one of the challenges for us in asking this question is that actually even by asking it, we've already smuggled a pretty big assumption into the question. And that assumption is this. If God had good reasons for allowing the suffering that exists, we would probably know what those reasons are. But why think that? Because the truth of the matter is, if God exists, then as the Bible puts it, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts and his ways are higher than our ways. And so as the only one who can actually see the end from the beginning, who has an eternal perspective, it may actually be entirely possible that God has many good reasons for allowing the things that he does, even if our finite minds are incapable of understanding them at this time. Tim Keller puts it this way in his book, The Reason for God. If you have a God great and transcendent enough to be mad at because he hasn't stopped the evil and suffering in this world, then you have at the same time a God great and transcendent enough to have good reasons for allowing it to continue that you can't know. However, just because we can't know everything, it doesn't mean that we can't say anything. And one response to this question, why doesn't God step in? Why doesn't he intervene? Is that he doesn't intervene to end suffering because he's a God of love. Now, that may seem like a bizarre thing for me to say, so let me just go on to explain. I've been married to my husband, Vince, for six years now. And every so often we have what what we'd like to refer to as a marriage compromise. We had one last week, actually, when Vince wanted to watch Rocky Four, and I wanted to watch Sense and Sensibility. And so we made a marriage compromise and we watched Sense and Sensibility. Now, this worked out so well for me, it often does, because my husband is a smart man who's learned that the secret to a happy life is a happy wife. And the secret to a happy wife are these two magical words, yes, dear. 
And I think anyone here who's married in the room will know that yes, dear, is basically the shorthand way of saying, I love you so much that I'm willing to choose you and your preferences even above my own desires. Yes, dear. If you haven't tried that at home, gentlemen, I recommend it. But, you know, just imagine with me for a moment, what would happen if in any and every situation, Vince was pre-programmed to say to me, yes, dear, no matter what I asked of him. Would that make for a happy marriage and a happy wife? I don't think so. Because, you see, what makes those words, yes, dear, so meaningful is because they represent a decision, a decision to love me by putting me first, even when he doesn't have to. And if you take that choice away, then actually those words become completely meaningless. If Vince is pre-programmed to do everything that I want him to do, then how could I ever know that he really loved me? Instead of having a husband who loves me, I would actually just be living with a mindless machine. And when it comes to God's relationship with us, with the human beings that he's made, actually, he faces the same dilemma. Because if he wanted to, of course, God could pre-program all of us to say yes, dear, in every time and every place. And he could intervene in every circumstance where people are freely choosing to behave in ways that go against his design and his desire for them. And that would certainly solve the problem of evil and suffering that we have in our world. But what would be the consequence of that kind of intervention? Nothing less than the complete removal of freedom and therefore a total absence of love. Because freedom is a prerequisite of love. And that is not what God desired. God isn't looking for machines to obey him, but people who would love him. But for us to meaningfully choose him and not just be his puppets or slaves, we have to be capable of rejecting him. And that's what we see at the beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis. We see how out of love, God takes a risk by giving humanity the freedom to reject him. And that is a freedom that sadly we take full advantage of. I've always thought that some of the saddest words in the Bible are the questions that God asks Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3 after they've exercised their freedom and their rights by rejecting him. Look at the questions he asks. Where are you? Who told you that you were naked? What have you done? You know, those are the questions of a heartbroken parent, the questions of someone who's been betrayed by those he loves and whom he longed for them to live differently, for there to be a better outcome. And they're also questions heavy with tragedy because God knows that the consequences of rejecting him, of rejecting his love and the life of love that we were called to live and created for will actually be the breaking of relationships and the breaking of this world and will lead to the most horrendous kinds of evil. I think so often when we think about the problem of evil and suffering in our world, I think we see it as a problem out there. Or we think of it as a problem that other people are struggling with. But actually the Bible speaks to a deeper truth than this. That actually the brokenness out there is the inevitable outworking of the brokenness in here. That the heart of the problem is actually a problem with the human heart. 
as every one of us, in one form or another, we're capable of evil. And we've inevitably done things in our lives that have caused suffering in the lives of other people. Which actually makes this question of God's intervention a much more difficult one to resolve than we initially think. Because any kind of response from God would require him not just to deal with those evil people over there, but actually to deal with every single one of us as well. The Russian author Alexander Solonitsyn, who spent eight years in a Soviet labor camp, says it this way. If only it were all so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the human heart. And who is willing to destroy a piece? of their own heart. A similar idea was expressed by the author G.K. Chesterton, who when he was asked by a newspaper to answer the question, what is wrong with the world, responded by simply saying this, dear sirs, I am, yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. You know, if this is the case, then when faced with the idea of God intervening with each one of us, we may suddenly find that we're not quite so eager to have God intervene as maybe we initially thought we were. But even if love requires freedom, and freedom comes with this possibility of moral evil, you may still wonder why God would choose to continue to allow us to go on existing in a world where that possibility of moral evil has become such a horrendous reality. My response to this objection is one that actually was developed by my husband, Vince, and his PhD on this subject. So I'm sorry, I actually had the wrong speaker today. Um, But what he has to say is this, that not only is God a God of love, but actually he's also a God who wants to love us. You know, sometimes when we're faced with the realities of evil, we think of ourselves with all, in this world over here, with all the suffering that it contains, and then we picture in our minds a better world over here, a world without suffering or with less suffering, and then we think, why couldn't God have created us in that better world, the one with less suffering or no suffering? We can all see the appeal in that idea. But what we don't realize is that actually when we dream up this alternative scenario, what we're actually doing is wishing ourselves out of existence at the same time. I was a little disturbed a few years ago when it occurred to me that as someone born on the 13th of November, there's actually a very good chance that I'm a Valentine's Day baby. But imagine what would have happened if on the 14th of February in 1986, my dad had accidentally overlooked the date, he forgot to buy my mum flowers, they had a blazing row, and he wound up spending that night sleeping on the sofa. Now, my mum's a forgiving kind of person, so I'm sure that they would have got past that and gone on to conceive some other fantastic children. But here's the problem with that situation. I never would have existed. You know, essential to what makes me who I am and what makes you who you are is our beginnings. The parents we have, the sperm and egg that we come from, and the combination of genes that is true of each one of us. So in that sense, even the slightest changes in human history have a profound effect on who comes to exist. If the world was significantly different, if our weather systems, for example, function differently, or if plate tectonics were changed so that different continents had come to form, then these changes would radically alter human history as well. Here's my point. God could have created that other world that we like to imagine with less suffering, but if he did, 
none of us would have been there. Maybe some other beings would have existed, and maybe they would have been very happy there, but neither I, nor the people I love, nor you or the people you love would have been one of them. Sometimes we think we can just take one piece of suffering out of this world and everything else will stay the same and be better for it. But actually, it doesn't work that way. Changing anything changes everything and everyone. Therefore, I believe that one of the reasons that God created and sustains this world, including allowing the evil and suffering in it, is because that was the price he had to pay if he was going to get me and you and all the people who will ever live. Now, that may cause you to go back and look at yourself in the mirror and then look out at the world of suffering around, suffering around you and to conclude, I don't deserve that gift of life. I don't think I was worth that cost. But actually, the amazing truth of Christianity is that God disagrees with you. He says that you were worth it, that he wanted you to live because he loves you with the heart of a father who loves his child. The Bible speaks of God's desire for individuals even before they come to exist in these ways. Before God formed you in the womb, he knew you. Before you were born, he set you apart. Or in Ephesians where it says, for God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. According to Christianity, not only is God loving, but he wanted to love us. So much so, in fact, that he was willing to do that even when it came at a great cost to himself. It's been said that actions speak louder than words. Sometimes we can tell somebody the same thing over and over again until we're blue in the face. But until they see it, they just won't believe it. When I first started dating Vince, I had this kind of shameful secret that I was very reluctant to share with him because I was convinced that once I told him, he would laugh at me for it. And the secret was this. I am a complete Trekkie. I grew up watching Star Trek with my brother, and ever since, I've been an absolute sci-fi nerd. But, but any time that anyone in school discovered this embarrassing secret about me, they would always tease me mercilessly for it, and so I kept quiet. But eventually, I decided that I was going to have to tell Vince, if only because the new Star Trek film had come out and I wanted him to take me to see it. And I kind of decided that actually the only thing more geeky than being a Star Trek fan would be going to see a Star Trek film all by yourself. But when I told Vince, to my surprise, he actually barely reacted as if it was no big deal. But even so, after years of being teased, I still found it hard to believe that deep down he wouldn't think less of me or, or, or just be thinking, actually, Joe is really not anywhere near as cool as I, as I thought she was. So you can imagine my surprise when I got to the cinema only to see Vince standing outside wearing a t-shirt that had Mr. Spock's face on it that said, live long and prosper. And he was holding up this huge Star Trek poster with all the cast members on it and then the words written across to boldly go where no man has gone before. And then as I approached him, he gave me a big hug and he said this to me, Joe, I will never be ashamed of you so you never need to be ashamed of yourself. And in that moment, I knew, in a way I hadn't before, that he was for me. Before that point, he could have said anything and I would have still doubted him, but when I saw him standing there, literally wearing my shame and embarrassment, willing to suffer public ridicule alongside me, just so I wouldn't go through it alone, I no longer doubted. My point is this. It's one thing for someone to tell you that they love you, but it's an entirely different thing for them to show it. And that's precisely what God does for us. 
You know, from this perspective, actually the question we're asking today is the wrong one. Why doesn't God intervene? Because the truth is, he does. And he already has. And when he intervened, he did so in the most extravagant and costly way imaginable. Because he's a God who cannot bear to stay seated up on some far-off heavenly throne while the rest of us are down here hurting and brokenhearted. Instead, he chooses to get down in the dirt with us by himself becoming a human in the person of Jesus and suffering alongside us. You know, this is a God who knows exactly how it feels to live under the threat of violence and terror. Because when Jesus was born, King Herod commanded the slaughter of every male child in the area that he lived. And this is a God who knows how it feels to be a refugee fleeing for your life. Because as a child, Jesus and his family were all asylum seekers in Egypt. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus sweats tears of blood and he cries out, On the night before he dies, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow, even to the point of death. Which means that for those of us here who are in a really dark place today, even those of you who've maybe struggled with thoughts of suicide, this morning know that you are in the presence of a God who's been there and who's right there with you even now, this morning. This is a God who doesn't just offer us abstract explanations for suffering, but who willingly comes and endures it for our sake. Ironically, it's the famous atheist Friedrich Nietzsche who said it best when writing about the ancient Greeks. He said this, the gods justified human life by living it themselves. The only satisfactory response to the problem of evil ever invented. You know, remarkably, Nietzsche never makes the connection with Christianity, but his words perfectly encapsulate what we find at the heart of the Christian faith. Because although we may not feel like we have full and complete explanations for the suffering in this world, actually the cross of Jesus gives us reason to trust God's love and his character because it shows us that he is for us. Highlighting the uniqueness of the Christian response to suffering in his hymn, Jesus of the Scars, Edward Chilotow writes this, The other gods were strong, but you were weak. They rode, but you stumbled to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but you alone. But if God... If God really did intervene in human history, then we may wonder why didn't he put an end to the injustice then and there? Why even after Jesus came and lived and died, do we still live in a world where every day people are committing unspeakable acts of evil? I think 2 Peter 3 helps us to make a bit of sense of this when when the text says this, you know, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You know, we find ourselves now in a situation where we're waiting and God is waiting too but not because he doesn't care about our suffering, but actually because out of love for us, he wants to give us as much time as possible to have the opportunity and to take it and to turn back to him. 
But although we find ourselves in this period of waiting for that final intervention, God also promises that the time will come when he will stage a permanent intervention. And that on that day, he will bring justice for every single person on this earth who's been wronged, abused, oppressed, or wrecked at the hands of other people. He promises this because he's a God of love, and love demands judgment. The book of James describes that final judgment day when on behalf of all victims, God will say to those who've who've been abusing them, look, the wages you failed to pay to the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. It may not always feel like it, but God hears every single one of our cries, our cries for justice. I was at a dinner party a few years ago speaking with an agnostic woman and, and I asked her after we've been talking for a while whether she believed that hell existed and this was her response. Well, I don't know, but I sure hope so. It's an intriguing response, isn't it? Because I think most of us feel the opposite. You know, I think we struggle with this idea of a God who judges or a judgment day because we think that love and judgment are fundamentally opposed. After all, if God is so loving, why doesn't he just forgive us? Isn't that what we've been taught to do ever since we were children? Why then can't God practice what he preaches? This is a question that I actually used to struggle with myself until something happened one day that actually radically changed my thinking on this whole issue. And the trigger was when one of my friends actually went through the terrible trauma of being raped and actually seeing her deal with the consequences of that, with the fear that she had to live with every day and the guilt and shame that she felt for something she had absolutely no reason to feel guilty for, and the way that she began to absolutely hate her body and and take it out on herself by not eating, and the way that she would just go from one broken relationship to another because ever since that day, she just can't cope with that idea of intimacy. You know, there were just no words to describe the horror of that or how devastated and angry I felt seeing her that way and how badly I wanted the man who did that to her and who got away with it to be held accountable and to receive justice. And that was when I realized that if I cannot stand the mistreatment of the people that I love, then how much more frustrated would a God who loves each one of us more than we could possibly imagine be when we hurt each other? God can't stand to see you hurt just as he can't stand to see it when we hurt other people. The truth is that actually some of you here have been treated very badly, and that matters to God. We think of love and judgment as opposites, but actually these two go hand in hand. It's precisely because God loves us so much that there must be judgment for the ways that we've wronged each other, because otherwise it would be like he was saying he doesn't care. After the massacre of his people in Yugoslavia, the theologian Miroslav Wolf has this to say on this topic. I used to think that wrath, that anger, was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? 
My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shall day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandfatherly fashion? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. For those of us who've never been the victims of serious injustice, sometimes judgment can be a hard concept for us to get to grips with. But for anyone who's ever been grossly wronged, the promise of God's intervention through judgment on that final day actually offers them a hope to hold on to, something to look forward to, even when nothing else in their life is left to cling on to. Because they can be assured that even if in this lifetime they don't receive justice, God promises that one day he will set every wrong right. The difficulty for us, however is that if we want judgment for other people, we also have to be willing to face it ourselves. And that's a problem. Because as I mentioned earlier, suffering isn't just something that happens out there, but it's a problem in here too. It's a problem of the human heart. In one way or another, we've all misused our freedom, we've wronged other people, and we've caused pain and suffering in their lives. So what then should God's intervention look like On the one hand, he loves each one of us so much that he has to judge us. But on the other hand, he loves each one of us so much that he cannot stand to see us pay the penalty for the wrongs that we've done to each other because of his love. It's a bit of a dilemma. So what then should God do? Well, actually, his answer to this has already been given and it's provided for us at the cross. Because the cross is not just where God intervenes by coming into our suffering and suffering alongside us, but actually it's also where God intervenes by defeating suffering and death once and for all. It's at the cross that we see the love of God and the justice of God in perfect intersection. This is where God himself takes on the evil of the world by looking down from the cross at those who are killing him with hatred in their hearts and with a heart full of love. He prays over them, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And then he goes on to make that forgiveness possible. As the very same God, the God who is judge of all the earth, chooses to be judged in our place. And to serve that sentence that we deserved. You know, when the Son of God dies on the cross, he's literally dying our death. He's exchanging places with us so that the only innocent person who ever lived takes on the suffering caused by everyone who ever lived. Like Vince with that Star Trek poster and that t-shirt, the cross is where God deals with all our brokenness and all of our shame by literally and publicly wearing it himself. And it's where he says to us, I will never be ashamed of you. So you never need to be ashamed of yourself. This is God's rescue intervention for every one of us. But the question for us is, how do we respond to that? 
I mentioned earlier that relationships require a free decision. At the cross, God literally gave everything in order to give us the chance to have a restored relationship with him, along with the promise of a new life free from condemnation. But even so, this isn't a gift that God can force on us although he'd long for us to take it. Instead, it's a gift we have to freely receive, a gift we choose to accept or reject. And actually, the implications of that decision are huge. Because the Bible tells us that actually this life is not all there is, that actually this world of suffering will be gone in the blink of an eye. And at that point, God will offer every one of us an eternal life in a world where evil has been ended, where justice is established, and where peace reigns. A world where God himself promises that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and there'll be no more mourning or crying or death or pain. Holding on to that hope of a future day, Job, probably the man who suffers most clearly in the Bible, is nevertheless able to speak, even from the midst of his suffering, with a confidence and a hope for the future. And this is what he has to say. I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I am not another. And how my heart yearns within me. You know, one day too, every one of us, like Job, will find ourselves standing face to face before God. But the question is, what kind of standing on that day will we have with God? Will we be approaching him as someone who's still awaiting that judgment because we didn't accept that gift? Or will we approach God with confidence, with a yearning heart, because you have already accepted Christ's gift of life that he died to give you? And you've experienced what it means to be loved by a God who chose you and loved you before the foundation of the world. And a God who even this lifetime walks with you through all kinds of suffering and who actually intervenes in the most amazing of ways through answered prayer. And today, if you're interested in that kind of life, a life lived with a God who's committed to see an end to your suffering because he cares so much for you. And today, I actually want to give you an opportunity to respond to that invitation and that gift if you haven't before. And you know, the way that we respond and receive that gift is with really simple, heartfelt words. I'm sorry. Thank you. That's something that you would like to ask God for today. Maybe this has been the big question that's been holding you back But actually today, it's just helped clear it up a bit and realize that actually rather than being against you, God is more for you than you could ever be for yourself. And if you want to know him for yourself, then I'm just going to pray a prayer now. And I invite you just to respond with me in your hearts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are a God who is love. I thank you that you're a God who desired to love us. And I thank you that you're a God who is willing to see that love through, no matter that it costs you everything. Thank you that you aren't a God who keeps at a distance in our pain, but you're a God who suffers with us. Thank you that you're a God who stands opposed to evil and is committed to setting this world right. I am sorry for the suffering I've caused, for the ways that I've wronged other people and the ways that I've rejected you. Please would you forgive me? Thank you, Jesus, that you took my judgment and you died in my place so that I could be free 
for you to receive the new life that you want for me and to step into a relationship with you, the relationship that I was made for. I want to start that relationship today. Please, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you come into my life and would you teach me how to love you as you've already loved me? Amen. Well, thank you so much for listening. And just to say, if you prayed that prayer for the first time, then please do come and speak to someone on the leadership here or come and find me afterwards. And we'd love just to chat with you and pray with you further. And equally, if things I've said today have raised questions for you that that you're wrestling with and you want to talk about it further, then please do come and find me afterwards. I'd love to chat with you. Thank you so much.